Thank you, Ashley. And I bring you greetings from the second floor, whether you're down on the first floor or above my head on the third floor or watching remotely from home. I'm not going to use any names, but his initials are Asher Blair, <laughs> who just decided, you know what? No, I'm just going to stay prostrate this morning. Good on you. Enjoy those Cheerios. Do want to say that it is a thrill, and I mean that with no exaggeration. It is a thrill that I get to serve alongside the staff and the ministers, the pastors of this campus. It is not exaggeration to say that I get to serve alongside the very best. And that the staff of this campus in particular, the staff of this campus are not, it's not so much that they're just a, a whole bunch of ministers and pastors. They're really sort of just first servants. They're just about 15 minutes ahead of anybody else. That's sort of our model. We're not trying to have this authoritarian, iron-handed approach of, any of that sort of ministry model. No, it's just we literally love Jesus. We literally love his people. And the fact that we get to do this together, we hope that that is in a, in a sense uh, contagious and infectious, but in the cool way, not the 2020 way, evidently. Well, as we continue to talk about the sermon series that we've been in for the last couple months in the book of Ephesians, I think it's not coincidental that it just so happens to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're doing that, I've got a very uh, existential question for you. It's always good as we go to God's Word to make sure that we're uh, malleable, that we are receptive, that we've been tenderized. So the, the age-old question sort of is, who are you and what are you doing here? You, you may think you know, but from an identity standpoint, I like to bring this up all the time, that your default as a human being in the world in which we all live, your default goes like this. You are not who you think you are. You are not who other people think you are. You are who you think other people think you are. <laughs> Let that get all over you. You are who you think other people think you are. That's our default identity. And so most people on the planet, some seven and a half billion people, spend all their time and energy trying to curate, trying to manage, trying to cultivate that thing that they think people think about them. And it's actually madness when you're trying to curate and cultivate the thing that you have absolutely no control over, and yet that is sort of the default operating condition in our world, in our culture, in our context, and in our society, even in our community. In fact, the Bible speaks very harshly to it. It's called madness. It's where things are not as they should be. It's called walking in darkness toward death. It's that big of a misdirection and a distraction. So our text this morning is going to speak directly to that. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and our big idea is really going to be a, a conclusion or a continuation, you might say, of our big idea from last week at the end of chapter 4, which was walk in newness of life. For this morning, it is walk in love, walk as light. So last week, we finished off chapter 4, walk in newness of life, this idea of walk. It is your philosophy of being. You're moving around in the world. Walk in newness of life last week. This week, walk in love, walk as light. Life, love, light. I hope you see that there. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read these first 14 verses. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's very word. What I would like to do in the moments that we have left is to quickly walk back through this passage, point out some things, and then I want us to apply it and walk out of here changed. Do you know that's what we do? We do not just come to learn to check a box for the week. We're coming submitting ourselves to the refining fire, the sharpened chisel of the Spirit of God as the people of God as we come to the Word of God that we would leave here changed. And if your expectation is anything less than that, guess what? There's grace for that too. This is why we're here. And so I'm going to invite you to open your soul to let the Lord identify any calcification, hardness, any sclerosis that would prevent him from speaking to all of us because all of us need to hear Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Paul says, therefore, it's a continuation of what he's already talked about in chapter 4. Therefore, be imitators of God. <laughs> That's funny. See, Paul's sitting in prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, having spent three plus years in Ephesus, these heathen pagan Gentiles, and now Paul, nay, Saul of Tarsus, is telling these pagan heathens to be mimike of Yahweh. Like, this is the most asinine, absurd impossibility imaginable. And yet, Paul says, that's the thing. Stop worrying about what you think other people think about you. Instead, live in what God says about you. And it's no mystery. You don't have to wonder how he feels about you. You don't have to wonder what he thinks about you. He's got your pick on his fridge. Be imitators of God. Well, how? How in the world can someone imitate the unimitatable? How can the finite imitate the infinite? How do you do that? Well, for that we have verse 2. The word conjunction is, is and there, but really it should be something more like in this way. Or here's how. How do you imitate God as beloved children? Not as those who cower in fear from some overlord or some sovereign master. 
you are far from God, but you are now beloved children, his absolute favorites, just like your own biological or adopted children begin to take on your traits and your characteristics. They are to reflect, they are to resemble, they are to represent you and your ethos and your ethic in the world. That's why God has made us children, but it's even bigger than that. As beloved children, Way back at the very beginning of your book, if you go to the table of contents and turn right, you'll find the book of Genesis. And right there in Genesis, we see God's initial plan. There is Adam and Eve, and in God's image, he made them. He made them in his image. And he said, I want you to mimic me. I want you to be my representative in the realm. I want you to be the vice regent of the world. You even get to name the ostrich. You get to be the king of the world. You. I want you to do what I would do because I'm your father, Adam, and I love you. And Adam went, cool. Forbidden fruit. And so he capitulated and he tossed the keys of the realm of the world to the serpent. But then the last Adam comes and he begins to set the world to rights. And we are found in him and we are to be sort of like Adam and Eve, re-aggressively involved in setting the world to rights, imitating God. What would God do if his presence were present in this world? It is... Just wearing a kid's ministry t-shirt. Well done, God. We are to imitate our father because we are his tolerated offspring. No, beloved children. This is how he says, walk in love. You're walking around, moving about philosophy. Your ethic, your ethos is to walk in love. But not just love like affection and attention. No, 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 no. Agape love, having the highest possible good in mind for the other, even at your own expense. Is that your marriage? I'm not making eye contact with that side of the room. Having the highest possible good in mind for the other, even if it costs you dearly. That's the love of Christ that he demonstrated. And Paul says, this is how you imitate God, by walking around, head on a swivel, looking for people's faces to go, I want your good above mine. I want your good above mine. No matter what it costs, you're worth it to God, therefore you're worth it to me. That's what it looks like to imitate your father. Walk in love. How? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us while we were yet rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted sinners. Christ said, I will do it. I want their highest possible good, even if it costs me being stripped naked, hung on a cross, scorned, mocked, dying. They're worth it. That's how we're to look at other people. It is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's marvelous. This is the Apostle Paul, nay, Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew of Jews, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eight days, studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the top rabbi in the Sanhedrin, and he's now telling these heathen, pagan Gentiles in Ephesus that the way they love one another is their liturgy. It's a liturgy. It's just the thing that we do with frequency and regularity as worship. Their loving one another well was to be their liturgy. And I think about what Ashley just said. I hear people say, oh, I missed the liturgy. I'm like, oh, well, change diapers. You get to love a whole household by loving that little person who is being incubated to be an imitator of God himself or herself. That our loving one another is actually our liturgy. Yes, I know we do confession and assurance and doxology here every week. That's a part of our little expression of our liturgy. Cool. I would shuck that tomorrow. 
if need be. I want our liturgy to never change that we love one another. It's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's incredible. But, verse 3, dun, dun, dun. Now here's where things go a little bit south. Sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness. This is a strange little unholy three that Paul will bring attention to periodically. What's going on here? Is this just the Apostle Paul saying, be good, don't be bad? Morality police, woo, woo, don't do bad, do good. And you're just supposed to try harder to be better. No, of course not. There's a whole lot happening behind the screen here. The Apostle Paul is sitting in Rome, chained to a soldier, writing to the people in Ephesus where he spent three years. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what the walk in Ephesus is all about. It's about Gnosticism. I'm not going to geek out and Greek out on this right now, but you just need to know that the prevailing, pervasive philosophy of the day was called Gnosticism, and it worked like this. True God did not create the universe. Oh, no, he would never do that. True God is spirit only, and he is good. And way, 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 way back, eons of eons of way, way, way back, way back, way back of eons of way back, he created some what they call demiurges, these little sort of, they would just, he just kind of popped out a new little slightly less awesome God. He was a demiurge, and that, that God would, after several eons, he'd kind of pop out a new demiurge. And over the eons, these demiurges, these sort of lesser gods, became a little less awesome and a little less good and a little more physical, until finally this one demiurge who they discovered was the Hebrew god Jehovah was really ornery, and he was really into like material, physical stuff. He created the physical world, and it was bad. It was evil. And so these people, the Gnostics, walked around saying the physical is all bad. The spiritual is what's good, and it matters. Who you are on the inside, how you identify, that's <laughs> no, hard to imagine. So just, just use your imagination and, and just trust me. I'm the people who said, I identify this even though I'm this. That's what was going on in Ephesus too. They said, no, you can do whatever you want. You Christians with all your morality, you, you think how you behave matters? It doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. This, this is just a, a meat suit. You're going to shuck it. All you've got to do is get the secrets from us, the Gnostics, and how you connect your divine spark back to the original true God from way back, way back, way back, way back. And it doesn't matter. And so they looked down on the Christians for their attempts at morality and proper behavior. They sort of patted them on the head and said, oh, that's, not, that's a nice try. You're a good little trier at life but you don't know how it works. It doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel good, whatever fulfills you is for you. And to try to like shackle yourself back, what are you, are you dim? Are you, are you just unintelligent, uninformed? And so they began to imitate their surroundings. I know, I know it's hard for us to imagine that Christians like to try to imitate their surroundings, but just imagine Christians who try to absorb the ethic and the ethos of the surrounding culture. How catastrophic that would be. Paul says, if you're going to imitate something, imitate the one who's right in his estimation of you, not the one who is wrong. So all this sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness, it's a strange little grouping. I hear this all the time. Does the Bible really ever talk about sexual immorality as being bad? <laughs> That's because I usually get that question at a junior high lock-in. But yes, or an elder meeting, either one. Same, same snacks, just for the record. Yes, the Bible is packed full with very clear and compelling admonitions and prohibitions against sexual immorality. Because listen, the Bible is crystal clear. Sexual immorality is a big deal, not just because of the moral aspect. 
Sexuality is a theological, Christological, ecclesiological reality. It is a microcosm and a picture of Jesus loving the church. Now, you may not think about that when you think about sex. Perhaps you should. It is about the fusion of a covenant. So I say this all the time in premarital counseling. Sex is not between two people. It's not even for a man and a woman. Sex is for a husband and a wife, full stop, period, because it is reflective and representative of the covenant of Christ and the church, and it must be held in esteem. And so these who say, oh, it's sexual immorality, it's just whatever. It's just, you know, times have changed. It's the 21st century. Now we have the worldwide interweb. We can kind of do, no, 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 no. This text has no expiration date on it. And if your Ephesians 5 has an expiration date on it, get another copy. Sexual morality, impurity, covetousness. Why are these three braided together? Because all of them have the idea of the perpetrator saying, what I have is not enough. I need something else. I need more. You've said this is good for me, but I know better. Because they all think I'll be happy if I have and do this. And so I let my eyes fall and I engage in this immorality, impurity, and covetousness. It must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We cannot normalize, is what Paul's saying. Don't, don't make this an okay sort of a thing. Verse 4, he says, let there be no... By the way, can I just tell you, if I could highlight a Bible verse in my entire Bible with a Sharpie, this would be the one. There's a verse in the book of Job from 4,000 years ago that says, what I have feared most has come upon me. And for me, that is to be the guy who preaches Ephesians 5, 4. It's kind of like Jason from Friday the 13th telling people not to play with chainsaws. Because here I go, on full display, I look forward to all of your gazes like, but he, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, it's me. Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. <laughs> foolish talk is morologia, moronic words. I know, I know, just empty babble, I can't stop, I pull into a cul-de-sac doing 60, and then I hit the gas. I know, I know, he's talking to me, I get it, y'all are all off the hook, this is just me, Okay. There be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. We call that staff meeting, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let me just move past that. The idea is that our words matter because they are expressions of our heart. Like my dad would always say, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. And so he says, instead, don't just be good. Don't just clam up. Let your words actually be redeemed to give thanks so that puts us in a position of humility and meekness, and that's a boon for the body. Now, the real context here is do not use your words to tear anybody else down, to be assaulting or accusing. That's really what he has in mind. Our words do matter. And when we serve one another and we love one another, we are to walk in love, walk as light, and those kinds of words do not demonstrate our imitation of God. For verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. So he's a callback to verse 3 now. That is an idolater. Why does he call these things sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness? Because idolatry, if you're not looking at me, please start. Idolatry is an eternal investment in something temporary. You've hitched your wagon to a thing that's going to fulfill you, save you, lead you to fulfillment and it's temporary. You're marshalling all of your energy, all of your time, all of your resources, all of your intent, feeling, and thought around something that's actually temporary. 
That's idolatry. That's what sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness or greed does. It says, I'm going to give all of my person to this temporary thing and it'll fulfill me eternally. And it is dangerously unqualified for the job. And we all do it. They're to have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, Paul's not saying that someone who sins is kicked out of the kingdom. It's not what he's talking about. He would never say that. What he's saying is, be mindful of what you're imitating. For those who do that with normalcy have no future. They are in futility and frustration. Why would you hook your wagon to that train? It goes off a cliff. They think you are a thing, but they're wrong. Don't follow their example. Imitate God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, there is an active deception aimed at the people of God. Perhaps you've noticed. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God doesn't like his children being lied to. Do, do you? I just love the way that teacher told my daughter this and that. No, I don't like that at all. Neither does God, and he will, he will exact judgment. Verse 7, key verse. Do not become partners with them or co-participants with them. You are not to look like your surroundings. There is to be a distinctiveness. Very important. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness. Not just in darkness, you're darkness. You, you were a secret covering of nasty. Okay, You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is what all of us where we see this in Paul's writings in Titus, in Corinthians 6, in Romans 6. You were a thing, God did a thing, now you are a thing. You were darkness, you were dead, now you're alive, now you're light. Light has this idea of radiating from its source to, to warm and to illumine whatever it comes into contact with. Verse 9, Paul's an apostle. He can do this. I would get graded off in my English class if I ever took an English class. Paul mixes metaphors. Verse 9, for the fruit of light, what? It's sort of a little play on words. It's similar to the fruit of the Spirit. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. If it's true and it's good and it has eternality, then you can be sure it's coming from the Spirit of God, not from the culture. See, our culture and our surroundings is trying so hard to produce good things and to have lasting meaning and all this. It can't. There's no staying power because it's built on the wrong source. Verse 10, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That word discern is what Paul will use in Romans 12. It's dokimazo. Be the proof person. Be the demonstration. Be the travel brochure. Oh, you want to know what Jesus looks like? Oh, it's, uh, uh, it's Kevin. He's the, he's the dokimazo. He's the one that points out. What's Jesus like? Oh, you got to meet Sam. Is that what you think about your walking around day to day? I don't. And I'm convicted by it. After all that wonderful three chapters of doctrine, Paul says, oh, you want a command? You want a command. You're the proof person of the Christ. And it's wonderful. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, he does not mean you run around being all Pollyanna going, shame, shame, naughty, naughty, and therefore boo-boo on you. Nobody likes that kind of person. And when I say nobody, what I mean is nobody likes that kind of person. No, no, no. Just you're living a life that reflects, resembles the Christ, actually illumines the error. And what Paul's talking about here specifically is in the context of the church. He's talking about saints. 
We don't have to condemn and correct people angrily. Sometimes there's a place for discipline and for loving admonition, but generally speaking, people who are walking in love, walking as light, they expose all the darkness and it just gets irradiated. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. That's what our lives do. We say this all the time, the virtuous life is the only life that works. And when we live virtuous lives, it exposes all the other errant approaches of walking around in our world. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, well, where does it say this? Paul sort of kind of is maybe quotes from Isaiah 50-ish. He quotes from Isaiah 61-ish. He's an apostle. He sort of mishmashes the book of Isaiah. And he quotes it thus, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What we think is this was probably a little hymn, a little chorus that they would sing. Maybe 7-Eleven, but with Roman numbers. I don't know. When Paul was in Ephesus, perhaps they sang this little song to one another as a, as a blessing, as a charge. Arise, rise, walk in newness of life. Come awake. I used to want people, former church a long time ago, I challenged them, you should get your pillowcase and embroider it so that every morning you wake up, there's headlines that says, wake up, and you remember, oh, I'm, I'm awaking as though from a death to walk in newness of life, to walk in love and to walk as light. And when we do that, not that it's a contract, it's not a transaction, Christ will shine on you. As you shine, he will shine. You're never, ever, ever going to be out of power nor energy. We are to walk in love and walk as light. Let me apply this as quickly as I can, very briefly. Three quick summary implications from this. Number one goes like this. Serving others is worshiping God. I hear people, well-meaning, and I get, I know, did you go to worship this morning? And what they mean is they heard some music and perhaps a sermon. But Paul seems to be using very specific priestly language that serving others is worshiping God. Walking in love is an intentional attitude of always diligently looking for people and ways to seek their highest good, even at your expense. I know that sometimes serving in a children's ministry or serving as a deacon isn't what you would by default choose unless you recognize that it is actually a fragrant aroma, not the diaper pail, but everything else, that rises to God and he accepts and is pleased with. I get to walk around. I have the vantage of walking around this building and all three floors on Sundays, and I see all the people that are doing things, and I think, oh, my God, does that smell good to you? And it does. I don't understand it exactly. I don't know how that works. But it is a fragrant offering that God receives. It smells good to Jesus. That's amazing. It's impossible for us to worship God in our own power or simply trying harder to be better. That's not what it's about. He uses this priestly language. We are representing one another before God. We all get to be the mediators of the new covenant blessing to one another. And so when we put on these gospel jerseys and we call ourselves Christians and we huddle up, loving one another well should be the only play we ever really call. Said it already, I'll say it again. Our love of one another is to be our liturgy. 
God loves that more than anything else because it's impossible apart from the finished work of the Son of God, the indwelling of the Spirit, the mutual submission of people to one another, and the truth of the Word and the example of the church. So again, serving others is worshiping God. If it feels like that's connected to what Ashley mentioned earlier, okay. No apology. Second, this is pretty obvious and pretty right at you, but let me say it out loud anyway. Grace is not a license to sin from the department of, well, duh, but let me say it out loud anyway. Grace is not a license to sin, yet we're always really big on grace at Bethel downtown, and I hope and I pray and I expect that we always will be. For freedom, Christ set us free, but not free to be fools. That's not in the text does not mean that we wink at sin. No, 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 no. The overarching thrust and theme of our Bible, both Testaments, is that sin is a really big deal, so much so that the impossible had to happen. God, who by definition cannot die, did. Sin is that big of a deal. Throwing down the grace card as a pass to sin and a plan to keep on sinning is an expression of a deep misunderstanding of who God is, what he did, what it cost him, how much he loved us to do such a thing, and what his plan is for our life. To look like his life, but virally spread all over the world. When we live these virtuous lives, the only lives that actually work, it shines a light on all the ways the world is broken and in darkness. See, a virtuous life is like a beacon of light showing people where the kingdom is. And I bet right now, I bet right now, as I say that, a virtuous light that shines like a light, somebody you know is that person. Maybe even just subconsciously you think, I, I wish my life was like theirs. Not easy, perhaps, but there just seems to be a light gravity on them that just points the way to the kingdom. See, the kingdom has come. It's not what anybody expected. And this kingdom, not even mighty Rome could hold back. Not even the forces of darkness and evil can hold back. It's happening. Jesus gets it done. The trouble is so many Christians lose examples. Who else to imitate? Paul will say it in Philippians 3.17, Philippians 4.9, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. You want to know what Jesus was like? Look here. So the adults particularly of the church, that's your job description. You want to know what Jesus was like, what he thought, what he felt, what he was disgusted by? Watch me. I say it all the time, parents. You tell your kids, if you see me do it, it's okay for you to do. See me say it, it's okay for you to say. <laughs> Except if you're me. Everybody else, you're good. Third point goes like this from this passage. We are to be growing, glowing, and going. And yes, I'm quite proud of that. We are to be growing, glowing, and going. Each of us as individual believers and then gathered together as a church are to be ever increasing in our Christ-likeness, not merely wanting to go to heaven one day when we die. That's never the biblical story whatsoever. So what is a quick way to be introspective and, as Peter says, examine yourself to see if you are really walking in love, walking as light. I'm going to get deeply, deeply personal in every single one of your grills. Three test questions that you can ask yourself persistently. Three test questions to know. Are you walking in love, walking as light? Number one goes like this. Does sin still look good to you? Yes! Hold on, I didn't want to show up hands. Does sin still look good to you? Yes, on one hand, but what I mean more specifically is, 
do you still have the tendency to think that sin is all this good and fun stuff that God more or less arbitrarily said no? Like, yeah, that would be fun, but no, you can't do that. Do you still think of sin that way? Do you feel like you're missing out by not sinning? Is there still sin that you begrudgingly just don't do just because you know that you shouldn't, but you really want to? Hmm. So long as you're stuck in that struggle, it's really hard to love and serve someone else for their sake. What would it take for Jesus to free you from that? Because he has. See, this is the gospel. Whatever you think is your biggest struggle, it's not a chronic thing for which there is no hope. He has freed you, and he wants to continue to do so, and it's the very best thing for you. Do you and I actually believe that? And if not, why not? I would actually, sincerely, not kidding, love to talk with you about that. Whatever sin you think is in your life that is unovercomable, I throw to you the entirety of my ESV Bible. The sin still look good to you. Number two, second question. This is going to be a little bit, a little bit, it's going to get all over you. When you're wrong, not if, when you're wrong, do you try to defend yourself? Hmm. Proverbs 9 says, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Is there still in your walking around world an instinctive rationalization and self-justification declaring whatever you did as righteous? Are you still manufacturing a facade that when threatened makes you go absolutely volcanic? Hmm. You are who you think they think you are. And so you have to continue to cultivate and curate that and build this facade. That means you're engaged in idolatry. If you feel like you always have to defend yourself, you have this image that you are bowing down to and it will crush you. This isn't about you having a temper or being defensive. It's a look into what makes you and me do and say the things that we do and say. Because deep down, we still think we know what's best and deserve to have things go our way simply because we're us. I'm me. It should go my way. Hmm. That's not what the kingdom looks like. That's imitating the world's error. Instead, Paul says, be imitators of God. So the first question, does sin still look good to you? Second, when you're wrong, do you try to defend yourself? Third, do you spend more time and energy resisting rather than emitting? Now, candidly, in our time in the 21st century, in this region of East Texas, I think this is where a great many Christians still exist. That so much of their lives in love with Jesus are simply trying to resist sin. Shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. And they're shooting all over the place. Oh, yeah. Crude jesting. Sorry. So much effort, time, energy on resisting. Don't do that. Don't do that. Try harder. Rather than emitting. When Paul says to walk in love, walk as light, what if we were to recalibrate our hearts, souls, minds, even bodies to be emitting the light of the kingdom of God? Not trying to just manage all the stuff that we should not do. That's exhausting. That's not the gospel. That's good news, is that we don't have to. We merely emit. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We look full in his wonderful face. And then people look at us and go, why are you glowing? Jesus, walking around emitting a light like the kingdom ethic because it actually works and actually demonstrates the goodness of God 
in this life. It produces in people a humble confidence for which this world is desperately thirsty. Walk in love, walk as light. You know who answers those three test questions perfectly? Well, you're in a church, and so the obvious answer is Jesus. Correct. Think about the life of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels. Always sin. He would no more have sinned than stuck a, a, a nail in his eye. No, he, he understood it for what it was. Of course not. Did he defend himself? Would it have been shocking to you to read in the gospel accounts at the crucifixion where Jesus, seeing them, hurled down the fireballs? That would have been out of character. Or saying, you guys got this all wrong. That would have been strange. No, Jesus didn't have to defend himself. And of course, he spent his time not resisting, but merely emitting. That's what the gospel accounts are. Look at him. Look what he says. Look what he does. Look how he feels about people who nobody else cares about. It's Jesus, you see. He's our Lord and our Savior and our brother and our friend, but he's also our example. Look at him. What would it be like to see him and hear him? Astonishingly, that's God's plan for a dark and dying world, is that they do see Jesus just in you and me. So this week, that's been my prayer, that specifically and particularly the people of the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church would walk in love and walk as light so that the people all around this facility would see Jesus. I don't even have to wonder if that's his will. I know that it is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the ennobling and the dignifying of these people, all of us who were in darkness, who were spiritually dead, far from you. But you summoned, you brought us near. You made us alive. You seated us in the heavenlies. You've blessed us with every blessing in the spiritual places. And so would you give us clarity? Would you purge away whatever distraction, whatever misunderstanding, whatever fleshy hang-on we still might maintain that prevents us from being imitators of you? as beloved children. Father, perhaps there's someone this morning who does not know you, that are not beloved children, that they are still sons of, or daughters of disobedience. I pray, God, that you would move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they would believe that he is the Christ, he is the son of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and that they would hurl all of their failure, all of their fallenness, all of their fragility at the foot of the cross and have it removed from them forever. Would you save them? Would they put their trust in you and believe? And if that's you this morning on any of our three floors or watching from some remote location, I encourage you, I ask you to reach out to someone you can talk to about this. My email is eric at bethelbible.com. Don't keep it to yourself. And Father, for the rest of us, we all know that we all need to be changed, to walk in love, to walk as light. Perhaps for some of us, God, just immediately and practically, that, that means serving in a ministry as an expression of worship. Ours is not to twist arms or to guilt or shame anybody, God. Ours is to give opportunities where these, your people, can worship you because you are worth it and your people are worth it. So, Father, would you continue to give us, by your Spirit, a people who are growing and glowing and always going. We pray all this in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.